Well, hello, hello and welcome. Um, I think we are expecting a few um, latecomers, but um, I don't want to stop us um, getting going right now. Um, and thank you very much for everyone who has come along on what I know is an exceptionally busy um, day and time of year. And thank you especially to people who've come from far afield, from out with Oxford. Um, and also my thanks to um, the Bodleian for hosting us here this afternoon. Um, I'm Julia Smith from the History Faculty, um, and I'm co-hosting um, this forum with Richard Ovenden, um, the head of the Oxford Libraries um, Network, Bodley's Librarian. And with me here are Helen Snaith, who, as you can see, is a senior policy analyst um, with UKRI, and David Clark from OUP. What we're going to do is um, each of the four of us is going to make a short presentation, um, which is being recorded um, and will subsequently be available as a podcast for colleagues um, who aren't here. Um, but then the recording apparatus will be switched off after the presentations and there will be um, an open forum for question and answer and comment from the floor um, and questions and can either come to the panel or they can be picked up by other people who are in the audience and so forth. So without more ado, um, let me get going um, and give you a brief indication of what we think we might be talking about um, and why I'm sitting here. And I'm sitting here because I'm the Director of Research for the History Faculty, which is the largest humanities faculty here in Oxford and by faculty in this sense mean what most other universities call a department, um, in other words, an institutional clustering of disciplinary specialists. Um, we are probably, although I haven't checked it out, the largest humanities department in the UK, and if we're not absolutely the largest, then we must certainly be up there in the top couple. History was one of the four subjects which in the RAE for 2014, the last research assessment, returned more than 50% of its outputs in the form of books and book chapters. And we're a discipline in which the monograph, as we all know and love it, is indeed the gold standard for scholarship and also for career progression. And so... A workshop on the future of the monograph is of something which is of vital significance to my colleagues in the history faculty. But I'm not really here just as a historian. I'm sitting here because I think that because of our sheer size and diversity of interests, which range literally globally um, and literally from the 4th to the 21st century, the Oxford History Faculty in some sense does stand for the entire British monograph writing and reading academic community. So what we want to do today is two things, in plan Richard and I, in planning this forum. The first is to begin the process of updating colleagues in history and the social sciences about some of the significant develops in the developments in the scholarly publishing landscape, which are of particular concern to those in the history and the social sciences. But secondly, and equally importantly, to provide an opportunity for everyone here to air questions, exchange views and information with people from a wide range of different interests in academic book publishing. 
And I should say that we're very lucky that we've got a very wide range of stakeholders present with us today, people who are involved in all stages in the production and use of monographs, as well as in the, making, in the processes of making them available to both current and future generations of readers. We've got academic colleagues here at all levels from early career researchers through to very senior colleagues, and of course colleagues we both produce and we consume books. We've got publishers present, both from the commercial and the academic sectors of the publishing world. We've got representatives of learned societies. We've got librarians, both subject librarians um, and system specialists. We've got research administrators. We've got policymakers and trendsetters. So this is really a forum with many different positions involved in the future of the monograph. Now, by brief way of background, all university colleagues, I'm quite sure, are aware that for the upcoming REF, REF 2021, we are required to submit all our journal articles and conference papers in open access format. And we're not going to be discussing journals here today, despite the fact that five weeks ago there was a very major European policy announcement um, known by shorthand as Plan S, um, calling for the realisation of full and immediate open access. It does have massive implications for journal publishing, but Richard and I don't want to be diverted for reasons which I will come on to in a moment from the goal which we had when we first um, developed this plan back in the early summer to keep our focus on books. Now, the second part of the background is that in December 2016, there was a quiet announcement from Hefke, or Hefke as was, and I'm quoting, that they intend to move towards an open access requirement for monographs in the exercise that follows the next ref. And that in that context, the next ref was this upcoming 2021 one. So they're referring to the ref after that, which is predicted to be around 2027-2028. So um, an intention to move towards open access requirement for monographs is what we want to focus on here this afternoon. And in the words of one of my colleagues who is one of the most high-profile, best-selling and best-known Oxford academics, we face an existential Brexit-like moment. That's a quote from an email which I received earlier today. Since 2016, there have been lively discussions among various stakeholders, of which um, I must hasten to say that I am not party to those discussions. I'm a complete outsider to them. And there have also been an intensification of the ongoing experiments with open access book publishing, but as I understand, they remain fairly small-scale and open access book publishing as distinct from journal publishing is still um, in pretty much its infancy. So in focusing on open access monographs today, we're focusing on very significantly different issues from those which have faced the journal world over the last few years. Um, and I'd like to pull out just a few of them as I see it from my perspective. And the first one, of course, is the length of time that it takes to write a book. It's not uncommon that it takes eight to ten years. In other words, it may very easily cross more than one ref cycle. Another one is the moment, the point at which a legally binding publishing contract is signed 
can often be at the start rather than at the conclusion of that writing process. And I'm sure that there are colleagues around the university who have contracts, legal contracts in their drawers which have been there possibly gathering dust for really quite considerable periods of time. And I hasten to say that I'm guilty. The economics of monographic publishing are very different from that of journals. There are questions about where the burden of financing the production lies. And there are also questions of authors' income-generating potential in the form of royalties. The editorial role of the publishers and the presses is significantly different for books than it is from journals. There is a big question around copyrighted third-party material in the form of images, text quotations, and the like, and the significance which they can play in humanities books. And then there are big questions around the infrastructure issues, both the software and the storage solutions, which monographic open access publishing suggests. So my own personal stimulus for agreeing to co-chair this um, forum with Richard is firstly, of course, as an individual scholar and author who both reads and writes books, but secondly and much more importantly, as director of research for the history faculty, I find myself asking the tactical question, and it's this, what advice should I give colleagues as they complete their publications for REF 2021 and lay the groundwork for their submission for the next REF? What should I be saying to them? And you're all here to help me begin to figure out some answers. And equally, what sort of book publishing contracts would they be advised to sign or not to sign as they face forward into the next 8, 10, 12 years' worth of their research? And alongside that, I have another set of issues which I might say are not so much tactical as moral, and they stem from my very, very great concern for the future well-being of our young colleagues. And here in Oxford, we've got a very large community of exceptionally talented early career researchers and doctoral students who know that a monograph with a prestigious press is the gold standard for positioning themselves as advantageously as possible in a job market which can be described at best as cutthroat. What should we be saying to them and how should we be helping the next generation of scholars form their careers in a way which is for the health of their disciplines and for the sake of their own career? So our aim right now is to raise some awareness of these issues and to stimulate as wide a flow of questions, comments, and information as possible. And on that note, I'm going to end. Each of my three colleagues are going to speak for no more than five minutes each, after which we will switch the microphones off and pass over for questions and comments from the floor. So I'm now going to turn to Helen Snaith, who is at the thick of the policy setting in UKRI to give us her take on some of these issues. Helen. Thank you. Um, I think I'm here today really speaking with two hats on. One as a senior policy advisor at Research England and the second as the secretariat for the University's UK Open Access Monographs Working Group. 
Um, I'll speak briefly about the work that the UK group is doing um, and how this work then is going to inform part of Research England's um, approach to developing a draft policy next year. Um, so, we've already stated that in December 2016, uh, the four funding bodies signalled their intention to move towards a requirement for open access monographs in the REF after next, expected to take place roughly around 2027. Uh, this was then restated at the Redux conference uh, in February 2018, and I think that's, that restatement has actually acted as a quite a bit of a catalyst for some of the discussions and it's probably led to these discussions that we're having today. There are, of course, huge benefits in extending open access um, to the monographs to include books, but there are substantial complexities in doing so. Importantly, and as noted by Geoffrey Crossick's report on open access to Hefke, which reported in 2015, Monographs are a vitally important and distinctive vehicle for research communication in many disciplines, particularly the arts and humanities, and they must be sustained in any move towards open access. So complementary to the announcement made by the four funding bodies then, uh, the University's UK Open Access Monograph Group was also established in late 2016 and is currently chaired by Professor Roger Kane. The working group is governed by and is accountable to the University UK Open Access Coordination Group, chaired by Professor Adam Tickell. The remit of the working group is to monitor, monitor and evaluate progress towards open access monographs, to foster a dialogue with the sector, and to encourage an innovative new business models. The working group has developed three strands of work so far. The first is a synthesis report that provides an overview of the open access monograph landscape with the significant activities and developments in this area. This is a report was published in July 2018. The further two strands of work focus on data analysis and on engagement and fostering a dialogue with the sector. On the data analysis front, full stop have been tasked with collecting and analysing data on open access monograph publishing. So it's a consult consultancy firm, uh, full stop. They're expected to report to the university's UK group by the end of the calendar year. Um, I think it's important to note as well, this is not an advisory function. Rather, they've been tasked with a very specific set of questions put forward by the project steering group. These questions have been further refined through interviews and surveys with stakeholders. The Monographs Working Group have also hosted uh, two engagement events. The first was organised with the Arts and Humanities Alliance and aimed at fostering a dialogue with learned societies and subject associations. The second was led by the Publishers Association um, and took place just last week and again aimed at addressing some of the challenges on open access monographs and some possible solutions to these challenges. So the data analysis from Full Stop coupled with the reports from two events, will be published as a package of work in early 2019. And what we're quite keen to do is to uh, collate the discussions from these two events, and that will be put forward as, as this, evidence, um, this body of evidence. This work then will feed into Research England's del deliberations on open access monographs during the course of next year. So in terms of timings... Uh, we expect to come up with a draft policy approach next year 
and with a view to seeking views and consulting with the wider sector in 2019. We'd have a view then to reach some firm, direct, firm decisions around the direction of policy um, towards the end of next year. And this would fit in then with the preliminary reportings from the UKRI Open Access Review, which will also be reporting in the second half of 2019. Um, I think it's probably worth stating as well that as we develop this policy, there will, of course, be exemptions. Um, and we were working with the sector through the Universities UK group, through with researchers, publishers, and other stakeholders in order to identify what these exemptions might be. I think we want to avoid the trap of if there are being exemptions, we don't want those to act as disincentives for making a monograph open access, which is such as some of the challenges that we need to work through. But in the context of today's discussion, it would be useful, I think, to consider some common principles in any move towards open access. Um, and one would be to maximise the dissemination of scholarship in the arts, humanities and the social sciences. We'd also want to maintain quality assurance through rigorous peer review. We'd also want to ensure that the processes of dissemination are financially sustainable for universities, publishers and for funders. I think there are some real opportunities with open access and monographs. Take, for example, unlike journals, there is the ability for the print version to coexist alongside the online version. We are in a diff very different model to journals, and it should be treated as such. And let's just work this to our advantage. Thank you. Thank you very much, Helen. Can I then pass straight over to David, um, who's the head of the academic division at OUP. Um, so thank you very much. I thought I'd maybe begin with a personal reflection. So I began my career publishing monographs in economics, and one of the trends which I've seen the last 30 years, and I'm of a generation where I predate the internet era, um, has been the gradual reduction in the numbers of sales of individual monographs. Now that comes with the two consequences. One, it challenges the economic um, viability of the monograph, mm -hmm. It also speaks to the dissemination of the monograph, and that is particularly relevant because one of the goals here is clearly to disseminate work and have it widely read and widely consumed. So we have been through um, what at various points has been referred to as the crisis of the monograph. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the monograph continues, and university presses like OUP spend a great deal of time and effort producing monographs of quality and distinction and in turning down and selecting monographs which they don't feel meet that criteria. OUP is in a unique position because we have a group of delegates who influence and shape our publishing policy in a way that many of the commercial presses don't. At the same time, we have seen some commercial presses under pressure, I suspect largely economically driven, have ended up publishing either many more monographs or none at all and the world has shifted quite markedly in that direction. So we've seen a lot of change. I think what's helpful is to keep in mind the usefulness of the monograph as a form. It remains obviously relevant in the arts and humanities. One of the sad things I think many of us have noted is in some fields we've seen a shift from the monograph to sequential 
journal article publishing, and there is a risk in any change in model that um, the monograph as a concept is undermined by pressurised academics keen to secure that first job for whom the attraction of publishing free journal articles rather than a monograph sways them towards the journal. Now that may, I mean, that may be a good thing or a bad thing depending upon the discipline, but we've certainly seen areas like economics which have struggled to publish as many of, of the longer form um, work which we used to see and I personally think that's a shame and I'm not always sure that um, I worry sometimes that we see economic models driving publishing behaviour in a way it shouldn't. The challenge has always been about when we talk about the monograph we always struggle a little bit with the definition of what we mean. Um, so I thought just to illustrate our points I would bring along a couple of examples um, so we have an exa example of a recently published law monograph, which OEP um, published, I think, two weeks ago. Um, and this is essentially a PhD, which has been extensively developed. Uh, it's gone through a rigorous editorial process. It's part of a series which has distinguished editors, and it meets a certain criteria. And we know that these sorts of books sell in the low hundreds in numbers, but they're also increasingly widely used electronically. And that is what a modern monograph looks like. I thought I would show, I would perhaps unfairly um, contrast this with one of our best-selling um, and rather topical US books, which is uh, a book by Kathleen Jameson on cyber war, which is interesting because this will effectively be a trade book. She's been very busy on talk shows in the US but what's interesting is if you actually look at the content and the format of what's actually in that monograph, in that book, it looks a lot like a monograph. And the level of complexity and difficulty certainly is that of a monograph. And the level of scholarship and rigor. Um, so we find ourselves in this somewhat definitional problem about where we have a book which may be very well selling and goes into a rough exercise, where does it fit within that? One of the challenges for monograph publishing is to do it well is unlikely to be a profitable activity. Um, we hope to be profitable, but it's by no means where um, the larger commercial houses have focused large amounts of effort. What they tend to do is go for volume, as I mentioned earlier. So that creates a challenge. What I think is very encouraging in the broader spectrum of the monograph is that whether we think about open access or whether we think about... Um, con more conventional business models, it is more possible to achieve wide dissemination. Mm. It, we're still somewhat in our early days of that, and I think, although we don't want to get dragged into the journal comparisons, the interesting thing is that 20 years of journal electronic publishing has created an infrastructure for dissemination and discovery mm. And we have not quite seen that at the same level with the monograph or with the book, but it's a helpful route forward because it shows us how we can actually ensure that um, we achieve the readership and the dissemination we all want. And that should certainly remain the goal of whatever the future outcome is. I would note that a lot of the conversations around the monograph were somewhat echo the conversations that happened before digital dissemination of journals. People often believed journals were not being widely read. There were efforts to try and determine whether they were useful. 
digital dissemination has, I think, both created new use and also illustrated the use and made it more meaningful. So that in itself is very helpful. What, so I, I feel a level of optimism about the monograph in whatever form. The challenge is when we look at the journal's space and we use it as, a, as an analogy, and we don't do too much, but the challenge is we have created a lot of complexity in the open access area, and we've also created um, potential, the unaffordability of publishing for some authors. Now, that remains a real area of anxiety and concern, especially as we move towards the arts and humanities. It's one thing for um, particle physicists to pay for open access publishing of whatever form that they want to, because for them, frankly, it's a rounding error on their experimental experimentation costs. It's a very different thing for historians. Um, I, I note with gratitude the reference to contract long sat in drawers, um, because I suspect we, we probably um, would share the concern about how many contracts we have, which have been sitting in drawers for some decades, and we still wait with a mixture of anticipation and um, fear to see how many of them turn up each year. Uh, the, the point I think we would have to look... We, at OUP, we do publish open access monographs, and we've had some success with that. Um, but still, the takeover remains very low. And that is mainly, I think, economic. The cost is, for most people, a discouragement. The biggest challenge, I think, that the sector needs to look at is not one necessarily that OUP is affected by. OUP is constrained in what we publish, helpfully, by the role of delegates who inject a quality control and require us to publish at a certain level. The challenge we have, I think, if you look at the wider sector, is if you move to a model which looks like a low-margin, repetitive activity, then that activity will become a, a race somewhat to the bottom in terms of quality, in terms of selectivity. Um, and if the author pays, ultimately, the risk will... And I know it may not be the only way you could articulate this, if the author pays, the risk is what you end up with is a, a machine-like process which um, is driven by volume being the only way for a publishing company to achieve a margin. And since much of the monograph publishing is within the commercial sector, not just the university sector, that's a risk and a potential risk, which I, I suspect most commercial publishers have no interest in pursuing, but fear they may be driven in that direction. So I think I'm within my five minutes. Thank you Jeff. very much indeed. Richard, finally, over to you. So, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to... Uh, I think some of the things which uh, the earlier speakers have said uh, leave, leave very neatly into the th some of the things that I'm going to say almost, as it were, at the kind of tail end of the, um, the life cycle of such um, objects as monographs. But I'm going to start by saying that as a librarian and... Um, having been in senior management now for 20 years uh, and witnessed the open access, um, dare I call it revolution, um, from that perspective for in two institutions, Edinburgh and Oxford. Uh, librarians have very much been at the forefront of that movement and generally um, in our DNA is widening access to the um, information and I think that's very much been at the forefront of the minds of librarians who've been active in the open access movement. I count myself as being uh, within that community um, and 
uh, and have certainly witnessed the benefits that that has brought to certain aspects of the scholarly communication life cycle over that period of time. I'm also somebody who actually now a very long time ago did, has published two monographs, so I have witnessed personally the, uh, the role that um, editors and publishers have played for myself in improving the communication of my own um, intellectual output. And so I am um, somebody who, have, who really kind of believes in the academic publishing um, business. I'd like to give um, a few little examples from the, li from the Bodleian's perspective, having administered the, uh, as we administer part of the open access um, compliance agenda here in the university, again with our colleagues from research services, and I acknowledge my uh, excellent colleague Lotta Boone from research services, we work very much in partnership on this, but um, since April 2016 um, we have um, managed on behalf of the academic community in Oxford uh, over 22,000 deposits into <coughs> our open access uh, institutional repository called Aura. Um, and we are currently operating at about 1,000 REF compliant articles a month, which are being processed by my colleagues in the Bodleian. And um, on top of the REF compliant, there's probably about another um, 3,000 a month which are being processed of, if you like, our academic colleagues' backlists. Um, so the scale has been enormous, and going alongside that scale has been um, incredible complexity. That's one of the things that David said that the policy agenda has brought into play is extraordinary complexity and a very fast-moving policy agenda. It's been um, a bit like nailing jelly to a wall, and we've put up um, matrices of different um, policy arrangements from research funders, publishers, journals, institutions, and actually navigating that landscape has been incredibly um, complex and difficult and frustrating, and there's been a cost overhead to that. And I think that has to be added to the economics of any new open access monograph model is the, the overhead of compliance. One aspect of um, funding open access has, of course, been the gold route, uh, article processing charges. And to give you a scale of that here, an idea of the scale of that here in Oxford, our um, budget for um, open APCs this current um, uh, academic year, and this is the Research Council's academic year, so it's uh, April to April, as it were, is two. Um, sorry, is £1.6 million from RCUK and £1.2 million from the Wellcome Trust and the Charities Open Access Fund. So that's an additional expenditure which is currently being provided to us from the public purse to allow gold open access publishing. We are currently operating at an average APC spend of about £2,000 per article for RCUK and... Um, uh, 2,300 for Wellcome Trust funded articles. So there's an, an enormous extra cost which is um, currently being funded by um, the research councils. That's currently um, guaranteed, as it were, until um, March 2020. What happens after that? And what will happen? Where will the money to fund um, 
book processing charges come from? How can it be fitted into an increasingly tight um, uh, academic funding uh, system? Talking of which, um, it might be worth just quoting you a few figures from Oxford's overall research portfolio. Um, because there has some, been some suggestion, particularly because the research granting opportunities in the humanities and social sciences are so much lower than they are for the uh, other disciplines, that QR could play and should play a role in funding um, book processing charges. So Oxford's overall research income from uh, multiple research um, sources in the last uh, academic year, and I confess I forgot to write down whether this is 2016, 17, or 17, 18, I think it's 26, 17, um, was a just a, a tad over 500 million pounds. 142 million of that came from QR, and from the ref-driven QR, that was 80 million pounds. And that spread across all the academic disciplines, um, and not in equal proportion, it should be said. Um, so... Um, if that is to be a source of funding um, BPCs, indeed, and possibly even APCs, um, there isn't a lot of wiggle room in that budget, if, um, if any. Um, so the other thing I'd like to say just um, about the overhead of compliance is that um, the libraries and research services, together with uh, academic administrators, have taken on, have swallowed a lot of this cost themselves, have um, uh, managed their priorities differently from the past to take on this role, and there has been a huge agenda of uh, advocacy and information provided to the academic community to engage them with the realities of um, the rigours of the new policy environment. And we can expect further, uh, <coughs> more of this to come if it's extended to monographs. And that it has taken quite some time for the articles world to wake up, even in disciplines which are more used to this mode of publishing, to, to, to take this on board. So I think the time, the lead-in times, as uh, Julia was saying, not only about the time it takes to actually write a monograph, but the time it will take for the academic community to adjust their way of working to fit any new model needs to be generous, uh, I would say. There are some other kind of more librarian things I would like to say, if you will forgive me, ladies and gentlemen. Um, one is about discoverability. One of the benefits of working with the commercial book trade is that they are good at making their books discoverable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that needs to be borne in mind that those workflows, those commercial publishing workflows, fit very neatly. We have honed <coughs> discoverability and library workflows very closely together with publishing workflows over many decades, and we've got them to work um, um, pretty well. One of the things that I've noticed from the legal deposit side of things is that when we've switched to allow um, uh, electronic uh, publishing through the 2013 legislation is that the speed at which those workflows have had to change and continue to evolve has been, um, has been actually quite remarkable. Um, one of the things that I 
thought I would also uh, mention is preservation. So one of the roles that libraries play on behalf of the academic community is to preserve knowledge and to make it accessible for future generations of scholars to access. We do that in the print world through what we um, euphemistically term regimes of benign neglect. Um, and so um, they have been really quite neglectful in uh, some institutions over the centuries. Um, I'm proud to say in this institution they are much less neglectful, particularly since we built the Swindon Book Depository where they are um, in um, ISO standard preservation um, uh, uh, environment. But the discoverability, the preservation of digital content is um, a growing issue in our community, and I speak as the president of the Digital Preservation Coalition, and particularly as uh, electronic publication of monographic form allows so much more richness of content, particularly in audiovisual content, to be added to um, the public publishing environment, how do we actually preserve that? How do we keep all that together? How do we make it citable in the future? Um, and the costs of that have to be borne somewhere. And we're still doing research and development on that. You know, we've, we've come a long way, um, particularly in the last decade or decade and a half but there's still a long way to go to figure out how we do that and certainly how we can ensure the accessibility to that rich content um, um, into the future. Um, there's just one other thing that I thought I would say before I finish and that's because I was expecting to hear it said by the earlier participants and that's the words academic freedom. So um, if, we're, if the model is going to shift to one where the academic community, if you like, has more control through the allocation of funding as to who gets access to book processing charges and can then take them to a publisher to seek them to be published, um, who controls that decision-making process? How is that to be managed? Um, uh, and how does that fit within a long-standing, much-treasured um, and highly important uh, culture of academic freedom that we are um, privileged to enjoy and protect um, in this country and in this university? Thank you. And thank you to all my fellow panellists. Um, we have thrown into the air a huge number of issues of very, very great complexity um, and in one way or another um, all of them are of concern to people here in this room otherwise you would not be here. Um, we are at the point where could I request our technical help to um, switch off the sound system please so that we um, not, not the sound system just not the, the sound recording. system the recording yes so that we cease to record 